For more than a decade, Tunisia was seen as the poster child for democratic transition after the Arab uprisings of 2011. By 2014, the country had had two free and fair elections and ratified a new constitution, one that took two years of heated political battles and ultimately consensus building in an elected constituent assembly to write. When that new landmark charter passed in January of 2014 with 93% support in parliament, Tunisians across the political spectrum celebrated. It looked like Tunisia was headed for a bright future. But the consensus building that went into drafting that new constitution soon dissolved, leaving behind partisan bickering and political deadlock. Successive governments and parliaments failed to deliver on the socioeconomic demands that had driven the revolution. Jobs were still scarce, prices were rising, and the basic services you expect from your government, everything from trash collection to transportation, weren't working. The economy tanked, inflation rose, tens of thousands of young Tunisians hopped on rickety boats trying to get to Italy. People's dissatisfaction with their government grew. Protests raged on the streets in the winter of 2020 and spring of 2021. People wanted change. Then, last summer, President Kais Saied took a drastic move. On July 25th, he fired the government, shuttered parliament, and essentially took full control of the country, saying it was the only way to stop the political deadlock and return Tunisia to the revolutionary path. In the years since, he's further consolidated his one-man rule as he's dismantled parliament, the judiciary, and the Independent Election Commission. Now he's asking Tunisians to vote in a referendum to ratify a new constitution. One, it appears, he's written almost entirely himself. It would give him sweeping new powers with nearly no checks on his authority. Critics, and even some of Said's former allies, including the head of the commission that helped him write the initial draft of the new charter, have warned it's a dangerous document. But others are hailing it as the only way Said can stamp out corruption and get Tunisia back on track. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Erin Brown, and this week we're diving into Tunisia's constitutional referendum, perhaps one of the most politically significant moments in the Arab world right now. decade of political infighting, economic decline, and widespread frustration with the political class has led up to this moment. But despite the monumental nature of a constitutional referendum, the political atmosphere in Tunisia these days feels decidedly muted, like it's wilted in the summer heat or gone on siesta. This week, my colleague Raya Ben Mbarak and I will take you on the road with us as we travel to towns and cities around the country and talk to politicians, activists, and regular Tunisians as they make their choice. Vote yay, nay, or simply stay away from the polls. But first, be sure to subscribe in your podcast app to get the latest episodes of Beyond the Headlines, and head to thenationalnews.com to read the rest of our coverage. One of our first stops as we headed out to hear what Tunisians were thinking was a vote yes meeting held in this great, old, opulently tiled social club in Tunis's Medina. There, we met up with Amal Hamruni, a member of an Arab nationalist party called the People's Movement, which is supporting a yes vote. Amal told me she and her party were voting yes largely as an issue of national sovereignty. She said she felt the West had been too involved in Tunisia in the past decades. 
and that Said's more oppositional stance to the West appealed to her. While national sovereignty is a legitimate concern, it felt rather heady and seemed like a tough platform to campaign on. As I looked around the room, filled with about 15 people listening to the speakers, I asked her what the people's movement was doing to mobilize a yes vote. Right now, she told me, we're just working with our own contacts, doing a little on social media and having these meetings. I was surprised at how little mobilization was taking place around the country. We saw photos from other Yes campaign rallies in different cities that were equally as sparsely attended. Despite what we heard from Tunisians as we went out on the road, they were behind Kais Said, or at least many of them were. A farmer from the central part of the country told me unequivocally he was with the president. A ship doesn't need a parliament, he said. A ship needs a captain. He believed Said was the man to lead the country back to the prosperity he said he experienced in the years under former President Ben Ali, who ruled until 2011. Others said they believed Said to be a clean political actor and didn't mind if he had more control over the country. He needs to sweep the corrupt politicians out of the way, another farmer told me, so we can get back to how things were before. I was curious about this political disconnect, so I called up Monica Marks, a professor at NYU Abu Dhabi and a longtime Tunisia researcher. She's been on the ground here for the past month, talking to political actors, civil society members, and regular Tunisians about the referendum. I don't think that if either side, Kaya Syed or those opposed to him, mobilized to their maximum ability, that either yes or no votes would be in the bag. <laughs> I think you'd have a real race. And that speaks to the fact that A, there are still a lot of Tunisians whom, as you indicated, believe that Kaius Syed represents the best hope for the country, or they're so afraid that if they don't vote yes in this referendum, the country is going to hurtle back towards the um, muddled, frustrating state of affairs in which it was locked um, up until July 25th of last year. So many people associate that muddled, frustrated state of affairs, as Monica puts it, with the politics happening in parliament. And it follows that lots of Tunisians are now willing to embrace a new constitution in hopes that there will be a change for the better. But, as Monica pointed out, it's not the document itself that serves as the magic bullet. It was the absence of socioeconomic justice, not the absence of a decent constitution, that was holding Tunisia back because Tunisia had a, a decent constitution, actually had a very good one. It's just that the government wasn't operationalizing that constitution in a way that delivered concrete, tangible fruits, dividends of the democratic transition, of the 2011 revolution to average people. Average people are still living in, in towns where there's not a two-lane highway um, within a three-hour drive. Average people are still living in towns that are strewn with more trash than ever before because government is ineffective. They're still living lives where access to capital to start the smallest of small businesses is unattainable and where public state-funded jobs are hard to get and often handed out nepotistically to friends, family, and cronies of the people who already have them. Average Tunisians are living in a society in which getting access to basic medications like insulin and blood pressure medication often requires some corruption on the part of the individual because it's just so difficult. 
So there's tons of frustration about how government is effectively working for people or, or failing to work for people. This is something I've heard over and over again from people around the country for the past few years, that the government isn't delivering and regular people are suffering. The cost of living has increased, as it has nearly everywhere else in the world, and wages can't keep pace. Inflation has reached nearly 9%. The middle class has all but vanished in Tunisia, and life has grown hard and wearying, even for those with education and jobs. At a bus stop in the rural town of Bufisha, one woman told us this week, we look at the fruits and meat in the market and just walk past. We can't afford that kind of stuff anymore. A teacher at a cafe in the same town told me he worried about the future for his children. It's a big responsibility to bring up children, he said, and I wonder what kind of future I'm going to be able to give them, or if they'll have any other choice than to immigrate to be able to live a decent life. At a political rally just outside the coastal town of Sous, we met Aziz, a young computer science student who'd come with his friend Ali to hear what some no campaigners had to say. We didn't see any change see, since like, uh, the revolution and the, like, it stayed the same. Like, the country doesn't feel better, actually. So I just want to hear from other people. I want to see what can be better and how they can actually uh, help us. Even though Aziz felt like he still had a reasonable future ahead of him, he said he recognized that something needed to change for the country's outlook to get better. I asked him what he thought of the new constitution. Have you had the opportunity to read the new constitution? Uh, to be honest, it's too long. <laughs> I didn't take the time to, to read it. And uh, I'm a like, computer science student, so I have a lot of things in mind. I didn't have the time. Actually. I can imagine. If I, but, may, uh, if I may intercept here, uh, I can... I can confidently say that most of the people will not uh, read the con Constitution. And uh, whether they have the time to or not, I think they, the majority will simply not care to read it, will not care about it, you know? They will just pick something out uh, it, that uh, suits them, and then they will make their choice, uh, like, based on that That's his friend, Ali, who I think tapped into one of the great truths about this campaign. No one is poring over the new constitution article by article. They're getting bits and pieces of information from social media or the radio and making their choice from there. Most folks were less concerned with the constitution than what they were hoping Saeed could deliver. It remains to be seen if they truly implement what they said, because they can just say that and not work with it, you know? Yeah. It's false promises or empty words or whatever you want to call it. The problem is uh, we're hopeless. Okay, like, like say it, like the whole uh, people are hopeless. They want to live better. They, they're not. Uh, they're not asking for anything. They're just asking to live. I would say what my friend here meant is, if you want, if you want to change a country, you would start. Get, you, like the best strategy is getting in touch with the people first and truly inspiring them that you want change. And personally, I don't know. I, I don't know who will bring that change or if it is even possible. Ali described what a lot of Tunisians are feeling, that long-running fatigue, and what they're hoping for. Someone to inspire them. Someone to lead the country towards the kind of change that would be meaningful and lasting. But few politicians are processing that message, and instead are focusing on ideological or procedural arguments to boost a yes or a no vote. The rally the young men were attending was put on by the only political party campaigning for a no vote the progressive Afek Tunis party. 
Before the ceremony started, I grabbed Fadl Abdulkeshi, the leader of Afek, and asked him why they were supporting No, and how they'd persuade attendees that it was the right choice for them. We took our decision several weeks before uh, the, uh, the constitution. Uh, first of all, because of the delivery of the president since uh, 25th of July 21, uh, and also for the process. The guy uh, took the decision alone without any, uh, uh, any advice, uh, any meetings. Uh, we, in the 25th of July, we were one of the first uh, party to say, OK, it's a positive uh, decision uh, because we had uh, a real problem with the, the parliament. And uh, we said that we are very open uh, to speak with the president. We were waiting for several months until the 22 of uh, September when he took all the, the power. Today he's head of state, head of government, head of parliament, head of justice. Amdlukhevi's main pitch for voting no is this change of heart he and his fellow party members had about Saeed. They'd been sanguine, even supportive of Saeed's move to pump the brakes on the government, but soon felt he wasn't interested in dialogue with the political parties he'd so roundly dismissed when he shuttered parliament. They felt left out, silenced. Abdulkefi argued that Tunisian people were also being shut out of the conversation, while Saeed failed to deliver economic change or growth. But rather than persuade people to vote no as an act against Saeed's failure to deliver, he and his party pushed a different message that the document itself set a dangerous precedent and could lead the country down the path of other failed states. So we have two arguments, uh, processing and uh, delivery. And today we have the third argument, which is the constitution, which is, uh, in our sense, uh, not a good constitution for Tunis uh, uh, because it's uh, hyper-presidential. It's not a presidential uh, constitution. Uh, the, the president can hire and fire people, uh, have two uh, assembly. Uh, I think that second, the second is the step, the first step of what he is calling bina uh, qaidi, which is a bottom-up uh, solution uh, we we saw in other countries like Libya or Venezuela. In a way, it felt a lot like listening to the Yes campaigners talk about national sovereignty. A fine argument, but so far removed from what regular people were thinking and feeling. We didn't hear campaigners on either side talk about jobs or immigration. No one seemed to be tapping into what Ali, and it seems so many others, wanted. Inspiration and hope that things would get better. While the tepid yes and no campaigns are holding their meetings and trying to rally support, the vast majority of the country's political parties and civil society organizations are calling to boycott the vote. It's a position that has a lot of Tunisia watchers puzzled. Earlier this year, Said changed the electoral law so that there was no minimum participation level needed to pass the new constitution. In theory, if only one person in the whole country showed up to vote and voted yes, the referendum would pass and the new constitution would come into effect. If the new constitution is ratified, it'll make life for political parties more difficult. They'll have less power and influence and fewer opportunities to shape policy or create laws. Some even project that President Saeed may eliminate parties altogether before the parliamentary elections in December. I asked Monica Marx, who's been in conversation with many of those political leaders, how the boycotters explain themselves. I think pro-boycotters understand their position to be both principled and pragmatic. Um, The principled argument for the boycott is the easiest to understand. 
It's the notion that this entire process started with a presidential coup and very brazen violations of Tunisia's constitution, which, as we should remember, was passed after painstaking years of debate amongst democratically elected political parties in conversation with hundreds, if not thousands, of civil society organizations all across the country, locally and nationally. And that's the constitution, the major post-revolutionary achievement of Tunisia that Kaius Syed upended when he closed parliament with army tanks almost one year ago to the day. Um, so the boycotters feel so disgusted by that that they say, you know, this entire process is unconstitutional, illegitimate, and anything we build on top of this process, any kind of roadmap that Kaya Syed tries to create, be it this referendum or any kind of um, consultation running up to it, all of it is built on an illegitimate foundation of sand and is therefore something that should be opposed, um, hook, line, and sinker. The ethical argument for boycott also appeals to a lot of Tunisians on a gut level because willing themselves, forcing themselves to go out and vote no feels like um, some kind of expression of participation. And, and a lot of them feel that participating will be a gesture of, of acceding to what Kaya Syed wants. The moral argument for a boycott may be strong for many Tunisians, but I was also curious about how, strategically, a boycott could be anything other than political suicide. I think this is the side of things that confounds politics analysts more because we're hard-pressed to think of examples where an, a, a passive form of resistance, like electoral boycott, has ever upended an election in anyone's favor. <laughs> I can't think of an example of that. Um, so so how, how can we understand this? Well, I think there are a few um, facets. Um, number one, boycotters tend to feel that if they participate, they're going to give Syed legitimizing photo ops. That what Syed is really after here is the ability to, to say, hey, look, I had a process where there was quite ample turnout and I still won. What a legitimate, wonderful process. A lot of them feel that there's just no chance that this referendum is going to produce a no vote. And if you accept that there's no chance for a no vote, then it becomes very logical to understand why a boycott makes sense. Because if you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, what you want to avoid more than anything else strategically is giving the president photo ops may look as if, or that he could manipulate into um, making look as if turnout was actually high. So there's the strategic and moral arguments for a boycott that many political parties are embracing in a kind of anti-Syed push. But as we talked to people across the country this week, many who said that they were staying away from the ballot box told us their calculus wasn't so straightforward. In the cushy Tunis suburb of Sidi Busaid, one young man told me he was simply too exhausted with politics, and boycotting was his way of saying enough was enough. I don't have any trust in the current system, and participation legitimizes that system, he said. In an agricultural town on Tunisia's central coast, 
One woman told me, we voted before and nothing good came of it. Why would we take the time to vote again? Earlier this week, a spontaneous protest broke out in downtown Tunis, where young activists, many of whom had been on the streets in the early months of 2021, calling for the downfall of the parliament and Caius Said's handpicked prime minister, Hisham Mashishi, gathered to express their dissatisfaction with the referendum. There, my colleague Raya met Amen Benjouira, who works for a local NGO. I'm here today because everything we fought for in the last few years is now at stake. Everything is at risk. Uh, there are no signs of democracy anywhere in the constitution, in the new constitution. Um, so we are here today because we don't want another and we don't want Qaysaid and, and his constitution that has no guarantee of rights and liberties. More than simply opposing the president, Amen said she was worried about a return to what she saw as the impossible state of affairs in the country before last July. She, like many young secular Tunisians, strongly opposed the Islamist Anahta party, which held the most seats in parliament, including the speaker's chair. So we are here today for a third option, that is us, the youth. Uh, we want a constitution that guarantees all the rights and liberties we have fought for since 2011 and even before. When you don't have rights and liberties, you can't guarantee economic rights and liberties. It's all connected. We need a constitution that guarantees all of uh, the things we need and want in this country. Uh, rights and liberties first, freedom, freedom of speech, individual rights, and then we can work for economic rights. It's all connected. We need the whole package. Tunisia goes to the polls on Monday, July 25th. Follow my coverage at thenationalnews.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Beyond the Headlines to hear all the latest episodes. This episode was written by me, Erin Brown, and produced by Arthur Edison.